The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and this week I'm joined by Dr. Jamie Allenson to discuss the war in Syria. We'll be talking about last week's US-led airstrikes, the response of the Labour leadership, the makeup of the Syrian opposition and much else. Jamie is lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of Edinburgh. He is an editor of Salvage Quarterly and the author of The Struggle for the State in Jordan, The Social Origins of Alliances in the Middle East, co-winner of the Jardalia Political Economy Prize. He is currently working on a book on counter-revolution in the Middle East since 2011. You can follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Poll Theory Other. In an article you wrote in 2012, you remarked that the situation in Syria is both extremely violent and extremely complicated and difficult for even those within the country to grasp, let alone those outside of it. Uh, that sounds as true now as it was then. Before we come to other aspects of the conflict, could you briefly outline the military situation on the ground? Yeah, well, more so probably. Um, at the moment, the, 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 the fronts are not really active. Um You've got essentially a division between three zones of the country, let's say. Uh, one which is around uh, Damascus up to Aleppo expanding um, and now trying to kind of mop up the last areas of resistance around Damascus, which is controlled by the regime, by Assad, by Russia, by Iran and their allies. Then in the northeast um, of the country, a part which was originally or was the, the area where ISIS was dominant, but now is controlled by the uh, Kurdish forces, by the PYD, their armed uh, forces, the YPG, and some of their allies in a grouping called the Syrian Democratic Forces. And they are backed by the US. So the US has three airstrips or bases in that region and about 4,000 troops. Then in the far <clears throat> north of the country at the border um, with Turkey, there's uh, Afrin, which was uh, part of the kind of Kurdish autonomous areas, which has been in invaded uh, and unoccupied by Turkey. And they have kind of imposed some of their allies under the, the name of the Free Syrian Army, so people who were formerly allies of uh, Turkey fighting against Assad, who are now basically fighting against the Kurdish forces on behalf of Turkey in that canton. And then immediately to the south of that, there is an area around Idlib, which is the last sort of bastion of, of kind of anti-Assad forces, various, rem a lot of refugees, various remnants of 
uh, rebel groups and, and, and Islamists or Islamist kind of uh, fighters. So that's the situation at the moment. It's not, there aren't a lot of, as I say, live fronts. Um, the last one was really, uh, or the, the most recent one was in, in Douma, in eastern, eastern Damascus, Gota, which is where the chemical attack took place. Before we come on to the chemical attack, could you say something on just the general humanitarian situation within the country and the scale of the refugee crisis? It's disastrous. It's an utter um, catastrophe, really. I mean, you're talking about 400,000 people killed, the majority of those, uh, really the overwhelming majority of those by, by the regime, not solely. Um, quite a lot of people have been killed by American bombing that's been continuing since 2014 in the East, and of course, Russian and Syrian uh, air force uh, assaults really killed a lot of people. Uh, but half the country is displaced. Uh, millions have left, just left, just as we know, gone to, to Europe, tried to escape elsewhere. Um, and the rest, especially the people who are poorer, couldn't make it uh, or pay to get out of the country or try and get to Turkey or to Europe, have been moved around to various places, cantons. And it, to some degree, there's been an element of kind of removing populations, so people being evacuated when, as we saw in, in, in Gota, when the regime takes over, people, I mean, the fighters will be evacuated, but often uh, larger groups of people as well. So <clears throat> that's before you get to the complete... Uh, recomposition, let's say, of the economy around war. So how expensive things have got. People have been in situations of siege in many places, in Aleppo or in southeastern uh, Damascus. I mean, also there have been some areas where um, anti-Assad forces imposed sieges on kind of smaller villages, but mainly it's been the regime using this ta tactic uh, which is basically using starvation against people. So it's it's quite horrendous, uh, absolutely horrendous. The population transfers that you mentioned, these have been described as efforts in demographic re-engineering designed to create contiguous areas of Shia populations where they didn't exist before in order to improve the geopolitical situation of Iran. Does that sound accurate to you? I'd be wary of ascribing, uh, you know, a singular plan to this. So there's definitely some kind of cleansing going on. But partly that's... Um, I think that that reflects a kind of longer politics in Syria of seeing the inhabitants of certain areas as kind of dangerous or unruly in what the French used to call, the French used to divide Syria between what they called utile Syria, useful Syria and unuseful Syria. So the more Eastern, um, very often the more homogeneously Sunni parts being the less useful parts. But a lot of this I think is also to do with not, even, not necessarily sectarian divisions, but actually a kind of Gentrification might be the wrong, yeah, that's the wrong word. We're not talking here about coffee shops, but basically replacing places that were rebellious with places that people who are likely to be loyal, and not all those people will necessarily be, 
Alawites or Shia. I mean, the Shia population in Syria is pretty small, actually. I mean, the, the, as opposed to Alawites, who are an offshoot or kind of related uh, religious grouping to Shiism. Um, I think it's probably more to do with creating bands of loyal, uh, reconstructed areas. Going back to the airstrikes, uh, what is your view of the uh, the recent attacks by Britain, America, and France? I don't think they're a good idea uh, because partly it's important to state that these are not the first airstrikes by the US on Syria. There have been thousands of airstrikes by the US on Syria, killing thousands of people. Since 2014, the US has been bombing Syria. And it's clearly not very uh, helpful. So I think it's something that should be opposed. That bombing and the kind of smaller, much, much smaller attacks that took place over the weekend, which I think are essentially gestures, really. So Syrians are now in a very, a really terrible situation where either they're they're stuck with this kind of uh, regime that's attacking them in this way, which is backed by Russia to the hilt, which means that if there are two choices for outside powers, if they really want to stop um, these kind of attacks, they probably would have to seriously degrade, if not attempt again to overthrow or attempt, sorry, not again, but attempt to overthrow or remove Assad, which I don't think has ever been really their aim. It's not something they want now. It would also imply war with, with Russia because Russia has poured money and materiel into keeping Assad in power. They're not going to give up on that easily. So that means potentially uh, globally life-threatening conflict, which I don't think any, any of us want. But that leaves then basically these these strikes are really just gestures, I think, to indicate a red line around chemical weapons. I think that the, the rhetoric around chemical weapons use is not completely, um, it's not just a facade. The chemical, the Convention on Chemical Weapons does preserve a kind of hierarchy amongst states where nuclear states have a big... Um, you know, the use of chemical weapons is a cheap way of kind of evening up uh, the stakes for poorer states against richer states. So it's generally in the interest of powerful states to keep that um, to keep that norm. I think that that is actually part of what they're doing. I don't think it's a completely nonsensical uh, argument. Some doubts have been raised on the left, including <coughs> by people like uh, Robert Fisk at the Independent regarding whether these attacks even took place or at least whether chemical weapons were uh, were utilised. What do you make of that? Well, people say this all the time, really. Um, it's, it's getting past worth engaging with, to be honest. Uh, one can mount scepticism about anything. You know, you can ask questions about anything, but that doesn't mean that your questions have to be taken seriously if their premises are not really based on logic or any kind of procedure of evidence that can be or any kind of procedure of evidence that can be replicated anywhere. 
um, and who will just deny any evidence in the contrary and say that anyone who says otherwise is uh, part of a conspiracy to keep us believing that the earth is round. There's no reason to, they can say what they like, there's no reason to take it seriously. And this stuff about chemical weapons denialism is getting to the same level, to be honest. There, essentially, there are a couple of arguments that go around this. One, the main one that's usually mounted, has nothing to do with any kind of empirical evidence at all. It's just to say, Assad is winning the war, so what's the logic of this uh, usage of chemical weapons? He can't possibly need to. It must be some other reason. It must be the rebels or the uh, <coughs> Islamists trying to tempt America into regime change. This totally misreads what's been going on with chemical weapons in the Civil War. So there have been about 73 uses of chemical weaponry, at least, that we know of in the Civil War. It's not unusual. What happens is Usually these barrel bombs that often have chlorine in them hit somewhere directly and then a lot of people get killed. And a lot of other times they don't necessarily get killed. Or you don't see it or it doesn't reach uh, the media. So it doesn't reach Donald Trump. It doesn't in encourage a kind of Western response. So these are not, this, this is a tactically common usage. It's not at all unusual for this uh, kind of thing to happen, for, for chemical weapons to be used by, by Assad, essentially. And in the case of the Duma attack, it's really clear what was going on. So there were two militias that were in, holding on in Duma, Failak Ar-Rahman and Jaysh al-Islam. Failak Ar-Rahman uh, had a peace agreement with Russia. So you see who's really kind of negotiating or calling the shots. So they, they, they made terms, basically. Jaysh al-Islam wouldn't. <clears throat> and then in order to dislodge them from Duma, the regime used this bombardment, barrel bombs from helicopters, which they do all the time. Some of them seem to have chlorine in them. Probably that seems to have been what was killing people. And then Jaysh al-Islam gave up and they agreed to leave as well. So it's a very clear military logic that was followed there. And if it was, in fact, Jaysh al-Islam or somebody else who was uh, trying to, you know, tempt America into war using um, some kind of faked chemical weapons attack, why would they leave? Why wouldn't they wait until America was attacking uh, the regime? So the main argument that is usually mounted against these things is just doesn't hold. There's other <clears throat> ways that people uh, try and deny the responsibility for these um, these attacks. You know, which is to say that there the footage that comes up and the documented evidence from witnesses and so on is just made up. That it's kind of uh, groups on the ground in Syria who are funded by the U.S or funded by Britain, who are making this stuff up and creating um, footage and so on. I mean, y you can say that all day. You could just say, for you could look at, for example, footage of the Israeli army shooting a Palestinian in Gaza and say, well, it's just made up. It's just the Gazans are, are, are Islamists and they're, uh, they're trying to encourage... Uh, attack on Israel. It's the same logic, really. It doesn't, it doesn't hold. If you believe that um, the rebels are kind of responsible for either staging or using a chemical weaponry, it means you have to have a series of logical leaps that just 
are astounding. So you'd have to believe that these people, who are very ill-armed, uh, have managed to develop uh, both an air force that can drop these weapons and the means of making the weapons themselves, and that when they've done that, they do not use it against the regime, but against their own sources of support, in order to tempt into the conflict a power which has apparently been attempted to be brought in several times before and it just hasn't worked. So why do they keep doing it? It just doesn't make any sense. This tendency to downplay the violence of the regime on parts of the left began very early in the conflict. How would you explain it? I think essentially geopolitical reasoning. So Syria was not an ally of the United States. Um, it would the Assad regime, I mean, before 2011. So they, they were hostile at times. Syria's allied with Iran. Syria supported um, Palestinian factions fighting against Israel, supported Hezbollah fighting against Israel. So on those grounds, when um, a re- revolt, a revolution really, broke out in Syria in 2011-12, that put people in a difficult position because it meant a kind of conflict between us solidarity with uh, with those people in an uprising versus a regime which was assumed or was made out to be kind of supporting resistance to US imperialism, even though that was pretty threadbare, I think, by 2011. So it's for that reason that I think people on the left, not just on the left, actually, on, on the right as well, um, have had this tendency to apologize for Assad and um, kind of badmouth his enemies. Not that there aren't plenty, of, there haven't been plenty of kind of uh, uh, terrible acts committed by Assad's enemies or that there aren't kind of, uh, you know, reactionaries among them. It's a, it's a war, it's complicated and it's, uh, revolutions are also complicated. But I think the, the siding with the regime reflects a flight from that complexity into a much simpler time of the kind of regime change uh, agenda of uh, George Bush Jr., George W. Bush, when it was quite easy to oppose, um, you know, quite clear uh, what the US was doing in Iraq, and people have read Syria wrongly through that lens. The Labour leadership have come under a lot of criticism, both from the right and the centre, but also from parts of the left for their position on Syria. What's your opinion? Yeah, I think it's been pretty uh, weak. I think that they're trapped between um, an understandable desire not to repeat the kind of mistakes of Iraq, uh, which they identify. I mean, rightly with a sort of Blairite wing of the, the party, that was Blairite foreign policy, was humanitarian intervention. But in responding to that, um, it's not one doesn't have to support Western intervention in order to see uh, that there was a mass uprising in Syria. And the, the main source of the violence and destruction in Syria is Assad and, and Russia. And I think that if one is 
you know, on the progressive side of politics or the left, um, you ought to be able to say that. I think it's very disappointing that um, Jeremy Corbyn and Emily Thornberry haven't said that. I, I don't. I don't expect them to. I don't think they will. There isn't a very strong grouping of people in Labour who are both, if you like, on the left and know enough, really, about uh, a country like Syria or bits of the Middle East to be able to take a more nuanced position, which they feel unable to do because they think it'll be giving in to, to kind of Blairite perspective on humanitarian intervention. But you don't need to do that. I mean, when Jeremy Corbyn says that you should wait until the OPCW go and check out what's happened in uh, Duma, that's, that's fine. I mean, that's quite sensible. That's a sensible thing to say. And certainly that one should not, you know, the idea of having a War Powers Act, that seems like quite a good idea. Um, you just don't have governments deciding when to go to war off their own off their own back. But the OPCW in the past, when there was what was known as the Joint Investigatory Mechanism, uh, which was a slightly separate organisation to the OPCW, because the OPCW is not uh, able to assign responsibility for chemical weapons attacks. They can only say if they've happened. So the joint investigatory mechanism did did have that power. So they, for example, the um, the Khan Shehun attack, which happened about a year, exactly a year, actually, before the Duma one, was quite clearly uh, the responsibility was pinned on the Assad regime by the OPCW. So the thing, or by the joint investigatory mechanism, which has then not had its mandate renewed by uh, the United Nations because Russia opposed it. So we won't actually see um, we won't see an assignation of responsibility from the OPCW and they might have trouble interviewing people as well or finding out what happened since uh, Russia and the regime have been in control of the site so it could be difficult for them. But the point is if one is waiting for kind of a UN agency to pronounce on these matters um and I think Jeremy Corbyn genuinely believes in a sort of multilateral world order, actually, then it's already happened. And it's already been said. The, the joint investigatory mechanism in the past has already pointed the finger at, at Assad. It's, it's already there. If we imagine for a moment that Labour are in government, what do you think a Labour government should do in a similar situation? Well, that is a, that is a really tricky question. Um, I don't think it would be a good idea to participate in uh, airstrikes like the ones that were done before because, as I say, I think that either they're gestures or they are um, really, really dangerous. You know, they really lead to potential world confrontation, which isn't going to do Syria any good, Syrians any good either. I think you could do things like... Um, allow airdrops of food into besieged areas and other kinds of supplies. That's less possible now with uh, increasing control of the regime, increasing kind of um, presence, air presence and air defense mechanisms also of Russia. So it's, it's, it's difficult. I think it's really difficult. I think that the, what one would want to see is a withdrawal of all the foreign forces actually from Syria, Russia and Iran 
included, as well as the US and Britain. Britain doesn't really have a big presence, just a few uh, sort of advisors. But this is the problem when one starts to try and think about and develop a socialist foreign policy. I think it's an open question about how far you really can do that on the basis of solidarity and socialist principles. I don't have the answer to it. But I think the first thing you could do is um, not do any more harm by sort of giving any credence to these ideas about the chemical attacks being faked or this sort of stuff. That would be the first principle. There's a lot of support on the far left in the UK for the Kurdish YPG forces, the People's Protection Unit. A lot of that seems to be due to their socialist and sort of anarchist inflected ideology. But they've also come under criticism on the left for subordinating their objectives to their war with the Turkish state. What's your view of the YPG? Well, they're... I think it's kind of inevitable that they would subordinate their objectives in that way because they are fundamentally this organisation of Kurdish nationalism or now a, a democratic confederalism, as they put it, an autonomous Kurdish uh, state or not state, but polity is what they seek. Um, I think it's understandable that people look for People want there to be good guys, basically. So they look for what they could see as a revolutionary example, kind of adopt it. And that's largely what's happened with the YPG, or let's say with the PYD, the political party, controlled cantons. I think you have to have a... You have to look at this quite carefully. So... They've been ambiguous in their relationship with the regime. At times, I mean, definitely in the past, Kurdish activism and politics was suppressed by the regime. But it was also, I'm talking about before 2011 here, occasionally uh, permitted, um, you know, allowing PKK to operate in northern uh, Syria. Um, So the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the Turkish version of the same ideology as the PYD, uh, as a kind of bargaining chip, uh, you know, a card to be played against Turkey if necessary. So there was always an ambiguity in the relationship of the regime to uh, these Kurdish forces and their relationship back to it. When the revolution started in 2011, there were also, I mean, there were demonstrations amongst Kurds in Kurdish, uh, in Kurdish areas. There had also been a previous uprising in a place called Amuda, which is a Kurdish place, in the mid-2000s. But the, the, the PYD weren't really leaders of that, um, or certainly not in 2011. And they've essentially been able to build their cantons because the regime withdrew from them and kind of allowed them to to do it. And most of their battles have been with, uh, well, with ISIS. They fought very, very courageously, definitely, against ISIS, Uh, but also against FSA groups, against uh, kind of other Islamist factions, other anti-Assad factions. So, as I say, they've, they've had this kind of ambiguous 
relationship, and they have a tendency that spreads throughout their uh, supporters in Europe, who are mainly Kurdish people or of Kurdish descent, that then spreads on to non-Kurdish people in Europe, that all of their enemies are ISIS, that, that everyone they're fighting is a fascist, and so on, which isn't true. So it has to be dealt with kind of carefully. They can be quite repressive inside of their cantons. Uh, we know that, at least from kind of Kurdish uh, activists who are not in the PYD. One could argue that that is, um, you know, a function of their being in a, in a difficult situation, and which would also be the same logic that's extended to the fact that basically they're protected by the United States. So this, the, the Kurdish-controlled areas are, they have, as I said, 4,000 U.S., troops in them. It's not a lot, but, you know, they're there. The U.S. is training their people. Um, it's kind of almost a no-fly zone over the eastern part of Syria, or no-fly zone for non-U.S. Uh, Air Force. The U.S. defends these areas against incursion. So it's odd that something that is seen as the reason why the kind of Syrian rebellion or the Free Syrian Army were beyond the pale, which is that they, they wanted, or at least parts of them wanted, the US to help them. They wanted US air cover. That's what the YPG have got. So if there's a US intervention in Syria, it is now to protect these areas. And yet they're not kind of subject to the same level of criticism. Um, I think that it may be strategically a problem for them if... America reaches a deal with Turkey. So when Afrin was um, invaded, where Turkey had basically the blessing of Russia to do this, the Americans didn't didn't lift a finger. Um, the French wanted to do something apparently, but the Americans didn't uh, didn't want to risk anything. And who knows that might happen in the future. So you'll see how these geopolitical game being played by the YPG could actually come unstuck quite badly. It wouldn't be the first time the Americans had abandoned the Kurds in the region, I suppose, would it? No, there's a long history and it's a, it's a long tradition of doing so. Um, I would say that there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of elements to the governance in the uh, YPG cantons that are admirable, certainly on paper. But the fact that those things can't be extended to the rest of Syria should tell you something, because it would need to uh, appeal to people beyond that particular political stream and to, you know, largely Sunni Arab population in a way that doesn't just castigate them um, as, as Islamists. At this point, where would you say the revolutionary opposition is? It seems to be largely defeated, defeated by the regime and also sidelined by uh, Islamist parts of the opposition. Yeah, there are still people. Yeah, I mean, there are still people there um, who try and have, have tried to keep, for example, elections going in places even that are dominated by the hardline kind of post-Al-Qaeda groups like um, uh, uh, Tahrir al-Sham and there are people who were functioning as this, the so-called the, the revolutionary bloc in Duma or Ngota who were uh, um, let's say the, the remnants of the kind of um, revolutionary uprising but by and large 
they're uh, you know expelled from the country or they're dead or they've been in prison for ages uh, completely uh, disorganized and not really uh, yeah not not really there basically it's a highly successful counter-revolution because of how how bloody it's been how would you explain the resilience of the Assad regime to me it seems the other way around like why has it taken uh, him so long to reach this point where I don't know if I'd say Assad has won because that first of all depends on what you mean by Assad and what you mean by won so the Syrian Arab army in 2011 had something like 300,000, 320,000 men, or sorry, the armed forces in total. How could that army spend seven years not defeating a politically uh, divided, poorly armed, certainly for the first uh, couple of years, and never had air support, uh, ideologically not very coherent uh, rebellion with no kind of contiguous front lines. It's quite odd that it would take them that long. And the reason for that is, of course, the army, largely a lot of them, defected at the beginning of the revolt. And in 2012 to 13, the choice that Assad had made in 2011, which was just just to repress. So with some kind of symbolic gestures like removing the state of uh, emergency uh, laws and so on, but didn't really have any real effect. Um, that was running out of steam by 2012-13. It was quite dangerous. What happened then to keep, I think, the, the regime in power was a quite successful policy of reorganizing the military kind of around uh, militias and sectarian militias, the National Defense Forces, in which uh, Iran played a strong role, participation of Hezbollah, and then, of course, um, uh, Russian air power. So without these external forces, it's, it's difficult to see Assad's rule really being prolonged. Um, I think it still would have been a very bloody war. So what the war has kind of shown is that if, if, a, if a government that has air power and artillery is prepared to use it, they can really destroy uh, a rebellion. Um, so I think there still would have been that. But essentially, I think he's relied upon his external patrons. It's not the, the Syrian armed forces themselves are now a kind of mixture of militias themselves. Of course, there are massive problems on the opposition side, I mean, divided opposition to start with, in which, oh, as it became increasingly uh, Islamized, as the regime became more repressive, as the the revolution became kind of concentrated in the more conservative areas, partially. Uh, it was That was reflected in their politics. And that kind of did lead to dynamic of 
of of fear amongst certain people, uh, of, of fear amongst you know non non Sunnis. That's undoubtedly true, um, but that was also I think encouraged for that reason by the regime. I mean that's partly. Um, the way that sectarianism operates or kind of regime sectarianism which is not to openly uh, favour or promote a certain religion it's to kind of take hostage this minority groups by showing you the the so-called extremists on the other side what they could do if you don't uh, if uh, if the regime were to fall Regarding Assad's foreign supporters, um, it's been suggested that in order to keep his throne, he's effectively surrendered Syrian sovereignty to Iran and to perhaps a lesser extent to Russia. Does that seem accurate to you? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it's difficult to get these, get inside the actual chanceries of power and know who's making the decisions. Some of these things could be exaggerated. But the fact that the fact that when the uh, militias, the kind of opposition militias, negotiate, they negotiate with Russia. It kind of tells you that somebody's calling the, the shots there. Um, I don't think it. It's something we need to know more about. It's it's a, it, it's something we need to find, be able to say with greater certainty how far uh, Assad can go, how, how much of the strategic decisions are, are his and his, his armies and how much they are the Russians. I think tactically, um, probably there's a lot of... Uh, it, it, it's down to local, local big men, powerful commanders, whoever they might be. Some of those will be Iraqis, actually. Some of them might be Afghans, uh, all kinds of uh, militias that have been uh, brought in um, via Iran to to fight for Assad. What does the end game look like for the Syrian regime? Are they aiming at complete recontrol of of the whole country, or are there certain key objectives that they still are aiming for but haven't achieved? Well, they say that, and they're on the up now. So they have a superpower backer. They're um, they're able to wipe out the kind of previous, let's say, phase of their their rebellion or the, or their enemies. So the only really the last bit that will cause them trouble, I guess, will be the part around Idlib. We may see something similar to um, to what's going on in Duma. I think that is what they want. I think it will be difficult to confront Turkey around Afrin unless there's an... It's totally possible that there could be an agreement reached between the, the regime and Turkey about that. But then the bigger issue is what about the US presence in the, in the East? So the US uh, kind of keeping the... The YPG or the PYD areas um, safe or and or it's kind of quasi-independent. We don't know what's going to happen with that. So for almost um, you know more than uh, ten years, there was a kind of semi-autonomous Kurdish uh, entity in northern Iraq, which then 
it's now become very powerful in, in current state of Iraq. Perhaps that will continue. Perhaps it won't. Perhaps there will be a confrontation between the US in the eastern half of Syria and Russia in the western half of Syria, which is quite uh, frightening. Regarding ISIS, Donald Trump has very confidently declared that ISIS has been definitively defeated. Uh, does that sound right to you? Mm, they're still about. Um, they still have the capability to, I mean, they've carried out some attacks recently. Um, they still have the uh, ability to carry out attacks, as I say, which means they might regroup in the future. They're not, um, they don't have the kind of vacuum that would allow them to build a power base or geographical area of control that they had in the past. They don't have any major cities. Uh, they don't have, they don't control the routes. They don't control the oil that they relied upon. So I wouldn't say that they're defeated would probably be a bit too much and they definitely could come back but they're not in the they're, they're not the Islamic State anymore they're you know a grouping they're uh, even in they're kind of reduced to the the status of some of their sympathizers in uh, Egypt or, or, or somewhere like that where they're not really um, they're not really contenders in the same way that doesn't who knows what's going to happen in the future what are some concrete things that you think people in Britain can do to help people in Syria? Well, I think we can, first of all, try and challenge some of these narratives about the what happened in Syria, about the Syrian revolution. I mean, that might sound a bit uh, intangible, but it's, it's quite important, I think, that especially as we have more uh, Syrians, you know, um, now in Europe that we don't erase their history and that we also try and learn from their struggle. I think one of the things we could campaign for here uh, is to allow in more refugees. I mean, it's a problem that there are so many Syrian refugees. They should have the right to go back, but we do not know what's going to happen with that. I think that we can you know, it's within British kind of policy and law to let more Syrian refugees come in. And if you're going to be having a discussion about Syria, including if it's about kind of airstrikes about Syria, that that should involve Syrians, even if you're not going to agree with what they say. I mean, Syrians don't agree with each other. I should say that. There's no monolithic kind of Syrian opinion that can be um, consulted. But... Um, shouldn't be ignored either. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. You can listen to the podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and on Acast and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Poll Theory Other. If you enjoy the pod, please do consider reviewing or rating us on iTunes. Next week, I'll be joined by Catherine Rottenberg to discuss the decline of liberal feminism and the rise of neoliberal feminism. Thanks for listening.